0: Luke chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 37 of Luke chapter 11. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Apparently, he was at camp too. Who knows? And the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burden with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and and the sanctuary." Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hinder those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might
1: say. Take that, please. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the the blessing um, uh, that these students have experienced in the last week of having camp. We thank you for the blessing to the students, to the workers. Thank you for the blessing to the parents of these students and to this church. Uh, We're grateful for the Times of teaching and worship together with other believers, and the discussion in those small groups, and the conversations, and over meals, and the laughter, and the memories, and the relationships that strengthen and establish, Lord, between students and with with the uh, adults, and we're thankful for those times, Lord, and we pray for the continued work of Your Spirit, Father, to to um, to, to work in the in the hearts and lives of these young people, Father. Thank you for the good encouragement and reminder, Father, from, from Pastor Eric this morning and 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 God, our hope is not in um it's not in in the the, the narratives of the day and what, what we feel like where things are headed. It's not it's not even in the it's not in the generation. It's our hope is in you, Lord, and you are faithful and you are constant and so uh, we, we thank you for that certainty. Father, thank you for the the marriage of Josh and Natasha Glorigan. Uh Thank you that they were wed yesterday, and we pray for their their new life together, Lord, as they as they um, learn to, to live as a husband and wife in the midst of school and work and preparation for the mission field, and and so we thank you for their marriage. We pray for your blessing upon it, and and that you would you would help them as they take these next steps together now, not as individuals, but uh, as as one flesh, and that they would um, they would trust you for the days to come and all it's needed. Father, we pray for that pray that for Paul and Emily as they um, as they continue to make plans for their future and with with their daughter Eliana. Lord, we pray for them as they um, look to 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 hopefully go to Budapest and and are making preparations for that. We we pray for them uh, that they would be patient and trust you for these these days as they. This time of transition, Father. Provide a support team around them, Father. Folks in this church and outside of this church that would, that would love them and, and, and see the, the, the vision that they have for this work and, and would support them in it, Lord. Uh, we pray that you provide for us as a church with the, the opportunity now for a new staff member, a business administrator. We, we, we pray that you would bring someone. Uh, and, and, and evoke that interest, Lord, and desire to, to, that has the skills and also the desire to serve the church with the gifts that you've given them, Lord. We, we just we pray in your mercy that you provide that person soon. Now, Lord, as, as we've read this passage together, we, we, we confess this is your word. You have revealed yourself to us in it, and we want to see you. Uh, but, Lord, we do confess our hearts are so often blind to our own sin, to our own weakness, and, and and so much so that we can't even see how directly your word is actually speaking to us. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, that you would not make that the case today, that you would help us to see our sins, not others, not the Pharisees, not the lawyers, not other people in other churches and other places. Help us to see our sins today, and help us to see clearly that the only remedy that is found for them is Jesus Christ so exalt the savior in our eyes lord today together as a church and give us ears to hear to believe your wonderful truth we ask it all in Jesus name amen well, one of the one of the neat headlines that i love seeing in the news right now uh, with in the midst of all the other darker stuff is there there is renewed um renewed excitement about space exploration and i love it uh, i've always been fascinated and now it's in the kind of private sectors and governments and around the world internationally and our military is involved in this and so lots of folks working to make uh space travel uh safer uh less cost prohibitive uh, to, to go further and deeper into space, and and so it's mind-boggling, though, and you start, you know, reading these articles and watching these specials on this, and it's amazing the kind of engineering that's going on to kind of push those limits of, of where we can go, and so, but it's also fascinating if, if you've, you've watched those documentaries on those earlier days of, of space exploration and some of those early missions. It's fascinating in that, even in that pre-digital age, I mean, Think of all the technology we have now, in, the, in, the, in this digital age, and it's changing so fast. But in that pre-digital age, they were they were working to do the seemingly impossible, and and so one of the main challenges that was engineers faced then and still face today is simply overcoming natural forces. It, it's it's breaking free from Earth's gravitational pull. It's it's breaking out of Earth's orbit and then coming back breaking out of lunar orbit and then breaking back in to Earth's atmosphere that's designed by God to keep stuff out and we're trying to come through it and so you just think on those early missions just to get the those 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 little that little three-man crew and that tiny little space capsule if you've ever seen those and uh, it, it just to get that into space NASA had to had to, uh, had to use unbelievable power to, to break free from that gravitational pool of earth. So, with that in mind, that image in mind, I just say this that one of the main things that we have to do as Christians, one of, one of the great challenges of our lives as a church and as believers, is to break free from natural forces. And more specifically, to break free from the gravitational pool of self. Self. Our bent, our natural bent is to try and justify ourselves before people and before God by what we do. This is our bent. This goes all the way back to the garden, goes back to Adam, the gravitational pull of self and self-righteousness. It's so incredibly strong and constant. I feel this in my own life, and I know you do too. I feel this for us as a church. This is As a pastor, this is a constant concern and and shared by our, our, our pastoral team, our elders, helping people to overcome these forces and break into the heavens, as it were. So this is Jesus' concern throughout His ministry as well. This is His concern with His disciples and with the crowds that He's ministering to. This is His desire for us now, today, as He's speaking to us now. That's what's behind this particular meal as we come to this next meal in the Gospel of Luke. This morning, we come to a kind of an awkward meal. I think you could pick up on that with the first reading. And there's some very uncomfortable dinner conversation, if you could even call it conversation. Um, and so Jesus has been invited into the home of a Pharisee for a meal, and things get sideways really quickly. And so I, I realize for most of us, when we hear the word Pharisee, we kind of have pretty negative thoughts that come to mind. I mean, these these, we know these are the bad guys. If this were a Western, they'd be the ones wearing the black hats and, you know, and the scruffy beard and all that stuff. And, but, but we need to understand, these were highly respected men in Jesus' day. They, they, the Pharisees were these, these were the lay religious leaders who, who served in the synagogues and who were calling Jewish people back to the Bible, as it were, to, to not cave in to the cultural corruption around them from the occupying Romans. So, the, so people revered the Pharisees. They, these were the holiest men in Israel. And, and the lawyers in this passage, they weren't attorneys like we think of. They didn't advertise on billboards on the interstate or daytime television commercials. These, these were religious, religious law experts. They, they devoted themselves to recording and teaching the law. And so with these two, these two groups, they're distinct, He's addressing them both, but they're also they're connected. They they're they're associated with one another. Both are what we might call they, they were both part of what we might call the conservative party within Judaism in Jesus's day. They were conservatives in a culture that was being overrun by paganism. I think we can identify with that. They cared about keeping and guarding the faith in the midst of a of a crumbling culture. So so. See, these aren't the bad guys. That's not how we would have viewed them if we were living at that time. We'd say these were the good guys. But in their well-intentioned desire to be distinct, to protect, to preserve, they, they could not break free from that gravitational pull of self and self-righteousness. And this and this bred in them, this kind of religious externalism and hypocrisy, which is what we know mostly about in them. And the Jewish people as a whole followed. And so this Pharisee, keep that context in mind of the Pharisees. This Pharisee invites other religious leaders in town and invites Jesus and probably his disciples as well to come for a meal. It's not just a casual hangout. This is a formal occasion, a formal meal where they're reclining at table. And right away, though, the scene becomes very tense and very awkward, like Eric walking up here with a bane mask on. Um, And so the Pharisee notices that when Jesus comes in, He doesn't bother washing his hands. This is what starts the conflict. I confess, as a child, I had many conflicts that were started with my mom over not washing my hands before meals, coming in from outside. But this isn't about hygiene. This has nothing to do with germs. This is is a ritual washing. And so this has to do with, with their fear of religious defilement. For example, on their way home from synagogue, from worship, what if they accidentally touched a Gentile? Or, or what if they touched something that had been touched by some pagan sinner? This was the concern that was behind this. And so it was a standard practice of the Pharisees to go through these ritual washings, this process of hand washing to show that they were ceremonially clean. And when Jesus doesn't do it, the host, the Pharisee, he scandalized. He just can't believe what he's seeing. He doesn't wash. Now, does he say something to Jesus? We're not told. Does he, does he communicate his disgust non-verbally? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, we could imagine how that might look. Or does Jesus just know his thoughts? We, we don't know for sure. We're not told. But one way or another, Jesus knows and he responds. And he, and he responds emphatically and he speaks very directly to the Pharisee. And if we had been there... It would have been weird and uncomfortable. We'd have had our heads down. We'd be pushing the food around on our plate with our fork and just trying not to make eye contact with anyone. I mean, it would have been awkward. It's awkward, but it's important for us. And that's what I hope to see this morning. So because because it's this, we are tempted by the same temptations that the Pharisees and the lawyers were tempted by. We're going to see that. We live with the same gravitational pull that they failed to resist. The externalism of the religious elite, our religious externalism is being challenged head on by Jesus in this meal, he's, and he's trying to help us break through that gravitational pull of self that's so, so incredibly strong. So this is awkward, it's direct, but it is gracious, brothers and sisters. It is gracious, like, like every other meal we've seen so far in Luke, and we'll continue to see these meals are enacted grace. And in this case we're going to see three things. It's there's grace to expose, there's grace to deter, or grace to warn, and there's grace to reveal. We'll walk through that together. First, grace to expose. Grace to expose their externalism. And this is what most of the cha- most, most of the section involves. So before, before we go further, understand this. Jesus isn't losing his cool. He's not blowing his top here, right? Like he's, he's just got some pent-up frustration over these guys and the things they've been saying about him, and, and he just can't take it anymore. No, that's not what this is. His words are measured, they're calculated, they're filled with lament as much as they are with condemnation. And we'll see that. But the, but the reality is, because the reality is that these religious, respected, revered men, they're spiritually dead. They're dead. And they're actively promoting this brand of, 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 of lethal externalism. You know, their hope is empty. It's, it's a sham. They're, they're clinging to some appearance of righteousness, but that's keeping them from seeing their their need for their true need for the righteousness of another. That's the problem. And so it's it's Christ's grace to expose this deadly problem. I mean we've been watching with just horror the images of this collapsed condominium complex in florida this week i mean it's just it's just awful to consider the scope of this and 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 the tragedy of it all and and i'm not trying to use this utilize this illustration but i i, I think about that and, and it's not yet determined and it will be a while before we what to, before we know what the cause was exactly but just imagine i know there there are reports of engineering reports and to function but imagine if there was an engineer that 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 knew there were major structural problems and that a catastrophic failure was imminent, could happen any moment. They knew that, and yeah, they didn't say anything because they didn't want to ruin families' summer vacation plans, or they didn't want to bother uh, or get the condo association upset with them, or. Or, uh, you know, cost them money to make those repairs. I mean, we'd say that's crazy. No, that wouldn't happen. But no, the loving thing would be to expose the problem. To show them the reality that this is crumbling. It can't sustain this. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's graciously, lovingly exposing their hypocrisy for what it is. He's dismantling this facade of religious and moral externalism to expose the real corruption in their hearts why so that they'll see their need for a solution that's outside of themselves they don't have it in themselves and so jesus strong words here to the pharisees and lawyers they contain this large measure of spiritual hope for them it's not that jesus loved the tax collectors and sinners and he hated the pharisees that's not that's not it he loved pharisees too he, yet in, in spite of their opposition and vicious attacks on him that are growing day by day, and we'll see that at the end of this chapter, we know from Acts that many of these men would convert to Christ. So in exposing them, there's a measure of hope that if he can show them the, the true depth of their sin for what it really is, then they might yet be drawn by the Holy Spirit to a saving relationship with him, to see their need for him. And so Jesus in love, not hate, Tells them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And he graciously is, is is just exposing them, taking the legs out from under their false sense of hope and sense of security by exposing who they really are. And so I just want us to see real quickly how Jesus kind of holds up the mirror of truth here to, 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 to these religious externalists, exposes them for what they really are. And so he does so with some general words, then he then we get into these six woes. But so eight eight kind of descriptions of these externalists, and the first one is this. Externalists set their own standards. They set their own standards. You see this in verse 37 and 38. And verse 38, we read this a moment ago, the Pharisee is judging Jesus. He's judging him for not washing his hands, not not for breaking a command of Scripture, but for falling short of a man-made standard. That's what's happening. There was nothing in God's law about washings before meals. There were all kinds of laws about clean and unclean and and related to priests and sacrifices about washing but this this washing before meal it was a man-made rule that had been layered over God's revealed law there were a lot of these laws and rules by Jesus day there were thousands of rabbinic rules and traditions that were that were kind of put in place to quote protect to put a hedge around God's law to make sure we didn't even get close to breaking it and so but these man-made Standards. What always happened is they ended up eclipsing and really undermining God's true word and clear word. And that's what's happening here. This is always the natural tendency of externalism to to create man made rules by which we live and by which we judge others. Second, externalists they prize form over substance, and I get this from Jesus' response to this initial initial. Uh, Judgment on him for not washing, and so externalists—they care more about looking clean, appearing clean, than actually being clean. Appearances matter far more than reality. That's that's what the issue is, and this is the, the heart of the issue here. This is externalism. This is where he's, and this is what he's going to unpack, and the rest of these woes that come here in a moment. But look at his blunt response to the Pharisee. After his judgment on Jesus, verse 39, And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. I'm having to be quick here, but basically he's saying if if you're just trying to look good on the outside... In an effort to cover your sin on the inside, you're acting, you're, you're fooling yourself. You're, you are a fool. Just imagine uh, a child swiping a casserole dish after you know dinner has been served and it's sitting on the counter and he really liked it and maybe it's tuna casserole or something disgusting like that. And, and, but your kid likes it and he thinks, that was really good, I want to have that later as well. So he swipes that casserole dish, takes it up, puts it under his bed thinking he's going to eat it later. Um, But then he forgets about it. And it's not discovered until months later. I think you'd smell the tuna But just for the illustration. And and so there's hardened food on there. There's, There's mold. There's bacteria growing on there inside the dish. And so the little boy is finally forced to clean his room, looking for a sock or something like that, looks under there and sees that dish, and he's just like, oh, no, I have messed up. And so he tries to fix his problem. And he starts scrubbing the outside of the dish, making it look good. And he takes it back to the kitchen, polished and clean on the outside, and hands it to his mom and says, Mom, look, the dish is clean. And mom looks inside, and there's this whole ecosystem that's growing in there in this dish. I mean, I mean that, that's, that's kind of the default mode of the externalist that Jesus is exposing here. They care a lot, about appearing clean, appearing to have their act together on the outside, but they don't really get down to the deep-down issues of the hearts—more important stuff. Third, externalists—they major on the minutia. Now, Jesus is begins in earnest to, to pronounce these woes upon the Pharisees and the and the lawyers, the scribes here. And so, woe! I mentioned this earlier, but it's it's condemnation and lament. It's it's judgment and grief. So it's that, it's that mixture. So he says, verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now there were tithing laws and in, in the in the, in the the Jewish law in Scripture related to harvest of grains and crops and different things like that. But the Pharisees, they, they had taken this to the nth degree. And they're, they're tithing these tiny little herbs that are, you know, out their back door that they use for cooking and things like this. And so just think about what this likely involves. How do you tithe an herb? How do you, what do you use of an herb? It's generally, what, leaves, maybe some herbs, the seeds inside of them, something like that. So, so here you are, you're counting out leaves. Nine for me or eight for me, two for God. Eight for me, two for God. Something like that. That's pretty meticulous. That's pretty extreme. And yet they're so busy counting their leaves, that the implication, they don't have time to help their neighbor. They, they, they rush past people that are in true need so they can get their little Ziploc baggy, snack-sized Ziploc with a few mint leaves in it, to the temple, present it to God. That's the picture. They neglect these major aspects of prescribed worship for so they can count their little seeds, separate them. That's that's, that's it. They're they're majoring on the minutia. But this is what externalists do. They fixate on little things, but neglect really big things like justice and the love of God. Why do they do this? What's the motivation? Well, William Hendrickson, a commentator, I think is helpful here. He says, rigid insistence on trivial matters is very often a cover for inner sin. Huh. concentrating on little things that we can handle that we can actually do and do something about we doing that allows externalists to ignore these massive gaps in their life and, and, and that they're not doing things are not doing. fourth externalists they crave being noticed verse 43 woe to you pharisees for you love the best seat in the synagogues I and mean, greetings in the marketplaces they love the respect and the admiration that people give to them they they, because of their moral and their religious reputation in that community when they're treated as if they're better than other people it makes them feel so good it makes them feel so with it so holy externalists they're consumed with what people think of them both social and religious spheres Fifth, externalists harm the unsuspecting. Verse forty-four: a Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. You now he's not just saying you're unmarked; like you're you're a tripping hazard to people. That's not that's not the extent of it. What he, behind this woe is the the Pharisees' fanaticism with with about not touching dead bodies or things that have touched dead bodies, because that would make them ceremonially unclean. And so before Passover. When all the pilgrims are coming to celebrate, they would, they would meticulously go around and mark all of, whitewash all of the, the graves around so lest some pilgrim is coming to, to worship for Passover and has made this trek and spent all of this money to get there lest they accidentally step on a grave and then now they're defiled and they're unclean and they can't worship. So they would mark all of these tombs. And so what he's saying here is externalists, these Pharisees, are like unmarked graves. People don't realize it. They don't realize you're there, but when when they come in contact with you, they're they're influenced by you and they end up being far worse off. They're they're made unclean by being near you. Externalists seem harmless and unsuspecting, but they're infecting others with their spiritual disease of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. Six, three more. Externalists weigh weary people down with even greater burdens. I, I do chuckle a little time every time I read verse forty-five. These woes to the Pharisees, and one of the lawyers answered him. Sounds like a lawyer, no? <laughs> Teacher, in saying these things to them, to the Pharisees, you insult us also. We feel implicated too. Jesus says, "Well, now that you mention it." then um, he turns to them and pronounces woes on them. And again, there, there's these three woes to the Pharisees, three woes to the lawyers. But really, they apply, all six apply to both groups. Both were externalists in that, that broader category. And the lawyers knew that. They, they understood they were, they were being addressed with the first three. And the Pharisees know it with the last three. So verse 46, and he said, Woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The the externalist approach to, quote, helping people is just to develop more demanding rules to lay on them. To load them up with new and expanded burdens to bear. Make it more cumbersome. Make the faith more complicated. But the truth is, they're not even keeping. They, They make Enormous demands on others, but they're not willing to help people who are, who are hurting, weary under those burdens. Seven. Externalists erect monuments to their own guilt. They erect monuments to their own guilt. Verse 47, But woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, that, and, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Now, there's more here, but let me just... Here's the idea. We've got to be quick. They, they give lip service to the prophets. They, quote, honor the prophets, and they build these elaborate tombs and maintain these tombs for the prophets, but they live in complete contradiction to their message. When I mean, you think of the prophetic message, as so much, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not just appearances. And so they're living in contradictions, but, and, and this is what he's saying. If you were alive at the time of the prophets... They would you, you would have hated them and you would have killed them just like your fathers. J.C. Ryle has a helpful, I think, summary of this. He says, Ask in Moses' times who were the good people and they will be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not Moses. He should be stoned. Ask in Samuel's time who were the good people. They will be Moses and Joshua, but not Samuel. Ask in the times of Christ who were such and they will be the former prophets with Samuel Samuel. But not Christ and His apostles, and this is what's happening. The Pharisees—they are the Pharisees and the scribes—they're ready to kill Jesus in honor of Moses, because he's in their minds trampling on the law by not washing hands, not doing their little man-made rules. They're ready to stone Jesus because of Moses, And, and what Jesus is saying: If you lived in the day of Moses, you'd been ready to kill Moses in honor of Abraham just like your fathers. Eighth, finally, externalists make truth harder to find. They make the truth harder to find. What are you, lawyers? For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So these, these religious lawyers, these interpreters, expert interpreters of God's word, They actually made it harder for people to understand and to believe God's Word. The the very men who are supposed to unlock Scripture for the people are locking it away, keeping people away. They're they're burying God-revealed truth under this thick layer of man-made traditions and rituals and rules. This is what's happening. That's what externalists do. They hinder people from truly understanding and believing God's word that gives life the simple truth and this is primarily what Jesus has in mind the simple truth, the truth of salvation by grace through faith alone it's hidden under this lie of salvation by obedience to man made rules and these hair splitting standards like washing before meals and by this they shut themselves out and all those who otherwise might enter into the saving knowledge of the truth. This is the externalists. Scorching words, aren't they? And they felt the sting of it. Verse 53, it's grace. It's grace to expose these men. It's grace to hold up the mirror and to show what's really going on. It's grace for Jesus to take their legs out from under them and saying, no, 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 no. It's a faulty foundation that you've built upon you, you, gravity wins here. But yet they, it stung. Verse 53, And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, just trying to, trying to let him get tripped up, tie his own noose, catch him in something he might say. These are some bad dudes, aren't they? These externalists, We should stay away from people like this, shouldn't we? We should avoid wicked people like this. Surely we would never, ever be like them, would we? I just turn the page in Luke. It is in my Bible. I don't know about yours. I don't know where the page breaks are. Keep reading. So Jesus leaves the setting of this dinner leaves the setting of this dinner. Verse 1 of chapter 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, He began to say to His disciples, first, stop there. So He's about to engage in this very public ministry with these thousands of people waiting to hear Him speak. Now you go back and earlier in chapter 11, you can see why there's These crowds that are are gathering around and wanting to hear what he's got to say. But, But Jesus, he's still thinking about his conversation at dinner with the Pharisees. That's what's on his mind. So with all these people here trampling one another, Jesus speaks to his disciples. Luke's very explicit. He speaks to them first. They can wait. I've got to say this to you now. What could possibly be so important that he makes this enormous crowd just keep waiting? It's like a public health issue out there. They're trampling on one another. But he says, that can wait. What could be so urgent that it must be communicated to his disciples now? Look at verse 1. He began to say to his disciples first, what? Beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So there's grace in this meal and what follows. There's grace to expose their externalism. Secondly, there's grace to deter, to warn against our externalism. As disciples of Jesus, I've been very deliberate about trying to use only third person pronouns in the first point of this sermon. And it's hard for a preacher, because I want to say you, me, us. But listen, it's second and first pronouns from here on. Because Jesus' warning here, when he gives this warning to his disciples, is not, beware of those Pharisees. They're bad people. Stay away from them. They 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 can really mess you up. That's not his warning here. That's not what he's saying with this. He's saying, beware this leaven not take root in you that you don't become like them in their hypocrisy Jesus knows as I've heard Pastor Dow say many times in my 19 years here there's a little Pharisee in all of us there's a little externalist sometimes a big one in all of us and it's like leaven that can spread in us and through us to others and it can spread through churches and it can spread through denominations And the body of christ so while it while it would be very easy for us to kind of join in and throw some stones at the pharisees and yeah we're on team jesus and those guys are awful we need to understand that their temptation to hypocrisy to externalism is our temptation and jesus knows this this is this is the natural gravitational pull in our hearts, in our church, brothers and sisters. Now, it's not hard, sadly, it's not hard at all to think of very notable, and very recent examples of catastrophic hypocrisy in the church. Some of you are aware that we have a personal connection with a, a man there's a, whose failure came to light this week, and it just made my stomach churn all week. Many of you are still wrestling with what's come to light after Ravi Zacharias' death. I talked with the dear sister last Sunday after the service and just eaten up over this. I mean, sadly, there's no end to the examples we could provide for this sort of thing. But I hesitate to, to, to share those. i thought about that, I mean, to give more, spend more time here, because it, some of They seem so shocking that we think, well, that's... I've I've done a lot of bad things, but never anything like that. And we kind of let ourselves off the hook. That's not what Jesus wants us to get out of this meal with the Pharisee. The very reason He turns to His disciples first is because they're perfectly capable of this hypocrisy. And so are you and me. And we need to be warned. We need to be deterred. We need to be exposed for what residual hypocrisy is in us. So, let's go back through. Let's beware. Let's be warned. Let's be alert to the real danger of hypocrisy that can spread in us and and through the body. And so, just I'm not going to put the points back on the screen, but just that list, let's turn it on ourselves a little bit. Because this is what Jesus does. Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of setting man-made standards standards to live by and to keep others and hold others to. Are we ever guilty of doing this? Uh, Yes. Have you ever looked at another Christian and thought less of them because they did something that the Bible doesn't forbid? But you think that we should avoid doing? Have you ever judged another Christian because they didn't do something that the Bible never commands, but you think we should do? I mean, we, listen, we have to make all kinds. This is normal for the Christian life, to make all kinds of wise and careful and thought through and, and prayed about decisions about all kinds of non-biblical matters. That's, that is, that's fine. That's necessary. We all do this all the time. We have to make decisions as a family and as individuals about things like music and TV standards, how much TV is, is acceptable to watch and what shows and all those kinds of things and how big of a TV can we have and all, I mean, all those things. We have to think through those things. How new does our TV have to be? I mean, swimwear and diet and family devotions and schooling and and standards of living and just on and on and on and on. We have to think through those matters and, and make wise decisions for us. and. And and come to to some decisions. Of course we do. If you're not, if you're just kind of floating around, that'd be total chaos and disorder in a a home, in a life. But thinking thinking these matters through and making decisions and living according to them, it doesn't make you an externalist. But what's your attitude about those decisions that you make? About those personal convictions that you're living by, which may change? When others make different choices about non-biblical matters, how do you respond? How do you view them, even? Now, I'm sure I'm the only one in here who does this sort of thing. So just act like you can relate to me. But I find the tendency in my own heart to sometimes try and make up for areas of my own weakness by attacking areas where I think I'm strong and other people are weak do that wretched man that I am beware of holding up your standards brothers and sisters as if they're gods this is is our tendency second beware of prizing form over substance beware of trying, trying to carefully curate this appearance of having your act together when that appearance is very much contrary to reality I don't mean because you're some exception and we're all we all our appearance is always in line with reality no this is this is just us we can use you know the the whipping boy right now with social media but there's some substance to that that we can use it to it's kind of an outside of the dish cleaning tool we can we can polish away on the outside and look good and inside it's not we can do this by Trying to manage our, our friend group and put people around us who make us look good and look more look the out makes the outside of the dish of our lives look cleaner. I got a whole list bunch of examples that I don't have time for. You can think of this. Third, beware. Beware of majoring on minutia. Oh, we can be so dogmatic about relatively insignificant little things course we try to make them sound all important and we make our case that these are very important issues and yet there are these glaring gaping voids in our character in our relationships in our worship in our lives there are these idols of the heart that are we're bowing down to and worshiping there's an unbelief in the lord that's manifest we can be we can be leaf counters can't we We can have our heads down making much of our little non-biblical convictions while we are neglecting clear, weightier biblical matters. It's a distraction. It's a distraction. Listen, a leaf-counting life is a miserable life. I can testify. A leaf-counting home is a miserable place. A leaf-counting church is a merciless place. Beware majoring on minutiae all right i gotta accelerate beware of craving attention and admiration of needing to always be noticed the the externalist in us desperately wants to be affirmed in all the public spheres of life we want the best seat in the church maybe not literally uh, i don't know what the best seat is clearly it's not the front row um but, but it probably wasn't the synagogues but not here uh, so the middle section I don't know what it is I'm not going to point fingers at anybody but we we love the special seats we love to hear our names applauded and admired we love being treated as if we're better than other people it can be a t- intoxicating can it it is lethal and it's addictive and and it's and we have to feed that more and more if that's what's we're we're being sustained by we just have to keep feeding it which means we have to keep up the appearances which means we have to keep creating man-made standards that we can actually live by next beware of the possibility that we might harm people and not even realize it because what externalism is contagious pharisees breed other little pharisees hypocrisy spreads in homes in a church it we will bring others into our orbit and put stumbling blocks in front of them. They think they're, they're coming to us to be helped by us, but we're actually leading them further from Christ by, all, by the way we're living an external life. Next, beware of putting heavy burdens on weary people. Instead of pointing people to, to, to Christ and to rest in Him, we can drag them to us pull them around us. We're the center and we can load them up with our standards and our opinions and our thoughts. Beware of erecting monuments to your own guilt. I've been thinking a lot about this and how, how it might connect? I would just say one of the ways this can show up, we can cling to our quote, rich heritage of, as Christians and as a church and we can try to live off the fumes of those who've gone before us. While, we, while at the same time we can be like the Corinthian church and as he says in 2 Corinthians 11.3 we can somehow be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We can take pride in our legacy and our reputation as, a, as a, and we can attach ourselves to people and to names and to, to not have hearts that are resting in Christ. Last, beware of making the truth harder to find by focusing on things other than God's revealed truth whether it's our man-made morality or our views on this or that or our social causes or whatever they are the truth of the gospel can be eclipsed Jesus graciously warns against externalism because it promises what it cannot provide that's what that's what it promises to help manage sin but it fails miserably in doing so doesn't it I mean it may seem to work for a season we can have the appearance of having it together but it's delayed failure. It's delayed judgment. And and you may get away with it for for a time but in the end it's going to be revealed. And that's the next thing Jesus says. Look at verse 2. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Listen, none of us None of us is immune from externalism, from the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Without realizing it, we can slip into these patterns of playing games with God, of keeping, keeping up appearances with others and trying to hide what's inside of us. This kind of this moralistic papier-mâché that we do in, over our lives. I beg you, don't play that game. Externalism is honestly as I, as I pray for the church as I pray for my own heart this pastor's heart for our staff for our leadership for our body this is, this is one of my most feared sins for Baraka and it's not because we're unusual or because there's something about us that makes us prone to this it's because we're normal we're a normal American church Externalism, hypocrisy, it tends to flourish where Christianity is popular and it's respectable. For instance, where the church is persecuted, where the gospel is opposed in our world, it's more rare to find someone who wants the appearance of Christianity without the reality of a life lived in dependence on Christ. That's rare, but in our context, it's fertile soil for pretenders must beware because it's so dangerous and because when you get down to the fundamental problem with externalism is this we we misunderstand our problem (laughs) that's what it is we we misunderstand the presence of sin the gravity of sin in our lives this is phariseeism legalism externalism hypocrisy whatever you want to call it it has the appearance of taking sin seriously it does it but it but it's not it's treating sin as if it's manageable it's if it's something, it's an external problem with an, with an external solution that's actually doable. That's what it does. It misunderstands the problem, so it also completely misunderstands the solution. We must own up to the fact that our sin is far worse than we have admitted. We must own up to the fact that our sin is far more pervasive than we've really even considered. it's it's absolutely indefensible before God and it's so bad that we deserve to be cast into hell because of it that's part of it but then we consider this our Savior knows that better than we ever will our Savior knows us better than we do our Savior knows our sin better than we do he could catalog it better than we ever could and yet on the cross Jesus knowing all of that knowing us knowing our sin he says I will bear it for you I will pay sin's penalty for you though I knew no sin I will become sin on your behalf that you might have my righteousness and then he looks us in the eye and says come come to me all you who are weary and who are, who are burdened. Isn't externalism wearying? Isn't it an exhausting way to live? Come to me, you who are trying to put up a good front, you who are trying to keep up a reputation, and I will give you real rest. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't have to pretend before God or before one another. We're to find help. We're to find healing in the in the church. This is a place of grace. This has been noted. That it's not a museum for the saints. It's a hospital for sinners. This is a, a recovery center for externalists. So, how will we ever break through, though? How will we break through that gravitational pull of sin and self? Let me go back to the opening illustration. That first Apollo mission. It was a 36-story rocket slash fuel tank for that little bitty capsule that could fit right here on this part of the stage. It's basically strapped to a giant bomb. Only three people were allowed within a three-mile radius of that launch pad, and those three people were in the capsule. It burned 1,000 gallons of fuel per second but that's what it took to break free from Earth's gravitational pull and, and, and to get out of Earth's orbit. The only hope of overcoming those, those powerful, powerful forces of nature was for them, to strap them was, was to strap them to a bomb and so that they relied on the power of, that, of that, that rocket. Listen, our only hope of breaking free from the pull of self is that we're joined to another. We have to rely on the incredible power of another, of Jesus Christ. The message today is not just quit being a Pharisee, be authentic, live open, just tell us all your garbage. That's not, that's not it. That's maybe part of it, and there may be some application to that. But the, the, the major response, the other response must be look to Christ, trust in Him. Students, abide in Him. Because here's what's so powerful in this passage. Here's even further grace, and the and the culmination of grace in this meal, this this enacted grace of this meal, and it's this: it's grace to reveal Christ. Jesus shines in these woes in this passage, and here's how the one pronouncing the woes, the one exposing, the one warning, the one deterring, the one this one cannot be guilty of the very thing he's exposing. Or or the words are hollow. And Jesus, listen, he's not guilty of this. Jesus is the exact opposite of everything he criticizes in this passage. He is the perfect religious leader and teacher. He He is not an externalist. There is zero hypocrisy in him. He is perfect righteousness through and through. While we supplant God's standards and we put in place our own man-made rules, Jesus perfectly held God's standard of righteousness. He is the standard of holiness. While while we are counting leaves and neglecting weightier matters, Jesus' priorities are perfect. He always does the Father's will. His entire life, His entire mission is defined by justice and love for God. While we love the place of honor, hunger for praise... Jesus, though deserving of honor, deserving of that seat, he willingly faced derision and scorn for us. He didn't seek out popularity, but the scriptures say he associated with the lowly. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Make no mistake about it, there will be a day when everyone will see Jesus for who he is and he will sit in the seat of honor, he will sit on his throne. But, but it, during his earthly ministry, he sacrificed his own comfort, his own reputation for us. While we are like unmarked graves and we spread uncleanness to others, Jesus is in sharp contrast. By His touch, He makes unclean people clean. While we load people down with heavy and unnecessary burdens, Jesus came to lift our heavy, impossible burdens onto His own shoulders and to bear them for us so that we might bear His yoke that is light and His burden that is easy. While we stand in the long line of those who've opposed God and opposed his messengers and his message, we're born resistant to that message. Jesus, he is the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. Everything pointed to him. And yet he laid down his life for those very ones who opposed him and who are murdering him, plotting his murder. While we fail to point people to the Lord and actually hide the key to knowledge, to saving knowledge, Jesus is the one who opened the door for us to enter into a reconciled relationship with the Father. He used the keys of knowledge, his understanding of the, of the will and the purpose of God and the nature of God to bring us to God. Listen, my, my hope and the way I've been praying this week and my hope for this morning, and I hope it's not a total failure, but is that we would move from, from simply condemning others for their externalism and, and that, we, that wouldn't just take us to the next place, that we would also then move from just kind of crumbling under our own guilt for our externalism, but that we would ultimately be moved to celebrate Christ, who is full of grace and truth. And through and through, our hope is not in us. It's not in our power to break free from the pull of self. Our hope is in the fact that we have been joined to another, to Jesus Christ. And if you haven't been joined to Christ I implore you. Oh, you cannot do that. You cannot break through. You cannot clean your life up enough to, to 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 satisfy God's righteous demands. You need the righteousness of another. You need the you need Jesus, and He died and suffered in your place. He rose again, that you can have life, eternal life with Him. If you've not been joined to Christ, I beg you, be reconciled to Him today by faith. Talk with one of us; we can we'd love to share more. But believer in Jesus Christ joined to Christ, relying upon His power, we can find freedom over the power of, of sin and power of self. So we're going to sing these words in just a moment. <clears throat> Yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's our hope. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, th- these problems, these tendencies, we see in Jesus' words here, strong words of woe, of, of judgment, of lament over the Pharisees and the scribes. They're not just problems for people who lived a long time ago. I hope that we see that now. There are problems. There are sins. There are temptations. Lord, we, we beg you to spare us from the temptation to justify ourselves from the temptation to cover up our sin, from the temptation to deal with it in some diminished way, man-made way. Help us to recognize that we are so bad that only you can save us, but that you, our Savior, are so great that there is no bad person beyond the reach of this gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name.